Well, good morning. Thank you, Mike. Um, it's, it's hard to believe, first of all, it's been eight or nine years since I've been here. Uh, time really does go by in a big old hurry. Um, but I, I want to really thank you all on behalf of my wife as well, who could not be here today, um, just for what this church has meant. You know, we're supported by a lot of churches. And not all of them have communicated about their prayerfulness for us as a family over these years, the way that this church has. And that, that truly means a lot to us. The financial support, you know, it means a lot as well. It's, it's the reason that we can go and do what we do. But that prayer support, we really believe, is a huge part of what sustains us, sustained us through really challenging times and days and relocations from one country to another. Um, and so I just really, from the bottom of my heart, thank you all. Um, for those of you who, who aren't too familiar with who TWR is, Transworld Radio as an organization, um, let me just uh, touch on that very briefly. We're the world's largest Christian media organization, and I always like to say that most people in America have never heard of <laughs> The reason for that is most of our ministry doesn't happen in the United States. It happens outside of the U.S. Um, and traditionally, uh, especially at the beginning of our ministry in the early 1950s, our ministry was all about using high-powered radio um, to get the gospel out into the world uh, in which we live. And I mentioned uh, during Sunday school that uh, WGN here in Chicago, uh, it's a 50,000-watt AM radio station. That's the largest station that you can have in the United States. We have radio stations that are... 250,000, 500,000, even a million watts that are broadcasting the truth of God's word in almost 350 languages. Um, and it's an incredible privilege to be a part of a ministry that has such a huge legacy um, of faithfulness and, and also of using media and technology. Um, we are a non-traditional missions organization. And by that mean we're, I mean that we're made up of people like me with a background in business and marketing communications, uh, radio engineers, electrical engineers, maintenance workers who will climb 500 feet into the air on radio antennas um, to repair them, to change light bulbs so that airplanes and helicopters don't fly into them at night, um, to people who are just incredible at finance, who have moved over to TWR from the big four accounting organizations in the U.S. to serve the immense, huge, challenging uh, scenarios that we deal with as an international ministry that is moving money around the world and wants to do so legally everywhere that we operate. An incredibly diverse organization, and um, I'm really just thrilled um, to, to be a part of it and to share a little bit with you today. Um, this is our family. It's photo on the left is different than the one I shared in Sunday school. This is like the, the in-between. Um, this picture was taken in 2018. That is actually the Colosseum of Rome that we are standing in when we took that picture. Um, it was an incredible privilege to be in Europe, two different parts of Europe, uh, living and working for four years from 2016 to 2020 when we came uh, back to our corporate office in the U.S. Um, but our children have um, turned into uh, more like adult humans than child-sized humans um, during this period of time since we were here before. Um, on the picture on the right, uh, you see my wife there. We've been married 24 years this last month. Um, joyous, awesome, amazing years that have gone by so fast. Our oldest daughter, Savannah, is there in the middle. She's 17, um, starting her senior year of high school. 
we're going through that whole process of ACTs and college applications, and I kid you not, I bet if we totaled up all the mail that that girl has gotten from schools around the country, it'd be as tall as me. Um, it's ridiculous uh, how much competition is out there for kids these days. Um, my son on the right, Donovan, he's uh, 14. He's turning 15 next month, but he's starting his freshman year of high school. Uh, started playing on the high school baseball team now. And uh, Brooklyn here in the front row is also on the left in the photo. And she is 12 in seventh grade. She's our only child left in year-round school. And she just happened to go into a three-week break this weekend. So she's here traveling with dad and having to listen to me speak all morning. <laughs> Well, where have we been? I shared this in the last hour, and I'll just share it again briefly. In 2015, we were coming to the end of our support raising process, which was um, a pretty big number, to be honest with you, when you're going to, to live and serve in Europe. Um, at the end of that process, we were invited by a large church in San Diego, California, to come out and really get to know them there as the last part of them deciding whether to add our family and uh, take take us on for support and one of the things that I had to go through there was like a doctorate level um, doctrinal interview which is one of the most intimidating things I've ever been through there were legitimately like seminary professors and senior pastors in the church that just grilled us on our 30 page doctrinal statement that we also had to write for them um, but that went really well and we were actually able to complete our support raising process in California we actually came back to Illinois for about a month uh, the month of May in 2016, and by June 2nd, we were in Vienna, Austria, and beginning our time there. And um, through a variety of decisions, our TWR leadership decided that the situation in Austria was becoming too challenging for us to keep our office there, and we decided to move um, and create a new office in the Mediterranean, and my family was one of the first families that went there to establish that new office um, in a very complicated situation. but. Um, God was really with us through, a, that was a very challenging time, especially for the kids. We had thought we were going to be in Vienna for a very long time. We ended up being there for just two years, and they had really strong established relationships that were connected between our church and their Christian school. And when we went to Cyprus, there was nothing. There was no 20 years of, of TWR's ministry there. It was all new. Um, it was a, a, a very different environment. And in the beginning of 2020, uh, my boss um, in Cary, North Carolina, invited me to come and take a global role in our corporate office, working with our executive and senior leadership. And, um, and we did that during COVID. I won't recap how that went. I did that last hour, but uh, that was quite an adventure. Um, but we also saw God's extreme clear hand of providence during that period of time from January, February, when COVID broke out in 2020 to us actually being able to move back in June. And so, that's uh, where we've been. <laughs> it's been quite a whirlwind. If you've never moved internationally, um, you have no idea uh, how immensely challenging that is. And uh, we are just so thankful that you prayed us through those times and through those experiences together. Um, well, this is what I'm, I'm here to share with you this morning. Um, wackadoodle wisdom. I love the word wackadoodle. It's a, it's a word I use all the time. It just means something that's weird, that's odd. Um, but it also means something that is eccentric. And today I want to share with you about uh, what I'm referring to as wackadoodle wisdom. And as I share with you today, I'm going to share with you some additional stories about what God has been doing through the ministry of TWR around the world. Um, and it's, it's my privilege to be able to do that with you today. 
Um, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But before I start, I want to do a little bit uh, more introduction, kind of historical background to this text. One of my favorite things about Bible study is not really pulling out the Greek and Hebrew and the Aramaic books that tell me what the original words meant, but to pull out all my history books and my culture books to tell me what was going on in the world at the time that something was written. And this particular passage I find extremely relevant in our world today, but the more I went back and I looked at the history around it and the culture of the city of Corinth at the time Paul wrote this letter, uh, the more that this passage just came to life for me. Um, The city of Corinth was a city that was um, visited by Paul. Uh, The record of that is in Acts chapter 18 during his second missionary journey. And I'm not going to go through that whole passage, but uh, Paul was going through a a, a gauntlet of challenges in Asia Minor and in Greece um, during that second missionary journey. And he arrived in Corinth in in not a great place, to be honest with you. He was emotionally, physically, and spiritually at the end of his rope. And he was ready to move on. And God gave him a vision and said, no, I need you to stay here. You will be safe. I will protect you. But I have work for you to do in this city. And the city of Corinth was a a city of complicated culture. Um, I think Corinth, if we were to be able to travel back in time and see that with our own eyes, we would be overwhelmed with what we would experience. I think it was a city that would make modern-day Las Vegas blush, which is saying a lot, because that is not, uh, <laughs> that's not a highly spiritualized uh, city in our world today. But Corinth, interestingly, had two waves. There was old Corinth, which was um, really when Corinth was at its absolute worst. Um, the, the worst of depravities that you can think about were going on in that place. Uh, the pantheon of gods and the way that worship was, was done um, in that context was, was really horrible. And I think, uh, ultimately, God allowed that city to come under judgment, and it fell in 44 B.C. Uh, sorry, in 146 B.C., But about 100 years later, Julius Caesar uh, looked at the the area of Corinth and where it sat and its strategic value and decided to rebuild it as a city. And so the new Corinth, the Corinth that Paul visited, was a Roman colony. It was a trade city. It was a very complex religious center and philosophical center in in much the same way that Athens was. Uh, It was a city famous for debates, for debates among the philosophers and teachers of new ideas, as well as the disciples of those philosophies and religions that were being promoted. It had a huge, heavy military presence because the the Roman emperor decided that one of the best ways to stabilize and establish this city was to give land to retired soldiers, Roman soldiers. And so the the military presence there was of extreme and immense value uh, to protect the trade that happened, but to Uh, to also develop the influence of the Roman Empire, and this gave uh, a lot of protection to these philosophers. It had a a lot of wealth because of all that was going on there, but it also had a lot of diverse cultures, a lot of collision of religions, a lot of uh, new things, new ideas, new products. You imagine spices from the Middle East showing up in Corinth and causing an immense stir, right? Little things like that just had a huge impact on that community. But ultimately, this was a location, a place where ideas were paramount. And what really I want to focus on with the city of Corinth that's most relevant to our passage is is four groups of people that are really important in this passage. Um, 
I mentioned that, that Corinth was very similar to Athens. Um, I had the opportunity about five or six years ago to stand on Mars Hill in Athens one evening and look up at the, the Parthenon, and that was the location where Paul gave that incredible message by invitation to talk to the, the philosophers and the religious scholars of that city and introduce them, unpack for them who Jesus Christ was, using this example of the statue that he found in their city to the unknown God. And Corinth, in a lot of ways, was, was just so similar. Um, philosophers and teachers would set up schools where the wealthy uh, people who lived there would pay money for their students to go in, their children to go in and become students of this great philosopher uh, to create a great life for themselves. Um, these were very similar to the universities that we have in our world today, but um, much more personalized. You didn't have a, a team of teachers. You had a single teacher that you followed day in and day out. And these teachers would share their ideas. The, the culture was a city of open debate, and the leaders of these schools had two very distinct roles. Uh, the first of those roles was to be sophists. And a sophist uh, was somebody who was a, a purveyor of wisdom and philosophy, and it included training their students in, in eloquence and how to argue and how to persuade, uh, how to use your voice very theatrically and dramatically. Um, in a lot of ways, the sophists brought performance art, performance philosophy, performance religion into the city center, into the culture. And the second group of people, sometimes a teacher, a philosopher would share these two roles. Sometimes they would be different in the schools and you'd have two teachers or one school would focus on sophism and another would focus on rhetorism. But the rhetors were the people that were gifted in oration. They were gifted in self-promoting their ideas they had topical knowledge of politics, of religion, of law and commerce. They were generally specialists in one or more of those areas, but they were a very self-centered people. Their goal was to draw all the attention to themselves, fix all the eyes on them, bring more money to them because their ideas meant wealth, it meant power, it meant influence, and and ultimately, you know, to parallel this, it's kind of like YouTube and TikTok in our day, right? You have these voices that spring up, they draw attention, they find a way to make income, and they develop a following that continues to enhance and increase that. And so these schools, these philosophical schools, were, were very important, they were very influential. Um, one of the things that I encountered uh, when I was reading about this is that the debates between the leaders and their schools of students would become so intense at times that actual brawls would break out in like the marketplace. And this is like a weird Greek West Side story, philosopher versus philosopher kind of a thing, which is really, really weird and comical to me. Um, but it, it speaks to the level of immaturity that actually existed in this place. There was a, a lack of real conviction um, a lack of soundness to what was promoted as absolute wisdom. So this intensity and this interaction and this propensity apparently for violence were marks of this culture. But then there was a third group, and this was a group that was referred to as the babblers. And we actually see an example of this in the New Testament. Um, Paul himself is called a babbler by the Athenians when he is on Mars Hill and presents his view of, of the one true God of Jesus Christ. 
And a babbler was considered by these philosophers to be um, somebody who was like a wannabe. He wanted to be a philosopher. He wanted to be a, a rhetoricist, but wasn't really smart enough to be or didn't really have a convincing argument or his stories weren't good enough or he just didn't have enough people following him that they gave them in the time of the day, right? And so a babbler was someone who was considered by the philosophers to be disgustingly stupid. That's what the translation of a babbler is. Disgustingly stupid. Now Paul lived, I mentioned, he lived and arrived in this city broken. He was undone. He was ready to go back to the safety of another part of the world to get off of the road. Um, He was tired. He was beaten. He was bruised. And God appeared to him to say, despite what you're experiencing, I need you to be here. I have great things that I need to do through this city. And because of Paul's work there, the 18 months that he ended up spending, the fourth group that began to develop in this culture was the church. Despite the stigma that Paul carried with him, he did have convincing things to say to people. There were people who were hungry to hear what Paul had to, to, to say, and I think that that's clearly this, the work of the Spirit at work, um, investing in the lives of people through the words that he shared. People believed in his speech. They, they found his knowledge to be interesting, and the church began to grow, but as quickly as the church began to grow, we see that it actually began to reflect the culture in which it was existing. It began to be marked by characteristics of greed, of championing one philosophy over another. And the letter that we have here of 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to what he begins to hear through messengers who are bringing information to him through the person of Chloe, we see in 1 Corinthians. Um, So that's a little bit of the background, right? We've got these four groups of people living in this very complex, idolatrous, uh, hedonistic kind of society. And Paul has been sent by God there. And let's turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded signs and Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The first point in our outline today is that the source of wisdom is God. We see here in this text that when Paul begins to address the community of the church in this text, he's actually addressing both the Jews and the Gentiles in very specific ways. Uh, The Jews were known oftentimes for being uh, scribes and scholars. The word teacher is a reference to the Jewish community. He talks uh, to the wise and to the debater, to the sophist and to the rhetoricist. And Paul begins to contrast what is 
what is different about Corinthian culture and Corinthian wisdom, the wisdom of the philosophers, with what he has to say about Christ. When he talks about Jesus being a stumbling block, that was a term that the Bible references specific to the Jewish community. Paul's first task anytime he entered a new city was to engage at the synagogue with with the people of the Jewish faith. And from there, he would move on and and talk to the Gentile communities outside. And Paul uh, followed that model here, a stumbling block to the Jews. Christ was the folly to the Gentiles, an errant philosophy. Because the idea here is that Jesus was merely a carpenter turned teacher. And that may have been an intriguing thing to the Corinthians, but it was, it was only like one leg of a three-legged stool in their mind. Where was the influence? Where was the following? Where was the miraculous or the new idea? And so the Greek people, the Roman people, as they began to hear Paul teach, they would have questioned, who is this Jesus that was such a bad teacher they killed him? Jesus was crucified in the Roman way as a criminal. In the minds of Roman people, that was the most humiliating, condescending type of way that you could be killed. The type of justice was immense. So in the minds of the Corinthians, Jesus was not an impressive person. He was not in any way a wise or persuasive or famous famous person according to their standards. And so in their mind, to allow or to follow such a teacher to become a preeminent person was insanity. It was wackadoodle. And yet Paul's humble, simple message, telling of God's wisdom found in Christ, resonated with some within that community, and the Corinthian church began to develop and to grow. And we see there that the wisdom of God supersedes the wisdom of culture. The power of the resurrection, the power of Christ's calling of Paul himself on the road to Damascus, a story that he certainly told with the communi- told to the community there. The way that he unpacked how biblical prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus, all of these indicated a hidden wisdom that that Roman and Greek community had never experienced or heard of before. This was fresh, it was poignant, it was believable despite this perception, this cultural lens of foolishness. Years ago, uh, a man named Rashid was struggling with his faith in Morocco, the faith of his culture. And as, Mar- as, he, as Rashid continued to struggle with his faith, he began to look for something that was different, and he found the gospel teaching of TWR on radio from our station in Monte Carlo years and years ago. And as he began to listen, he began to first become enraged with what he was hearing. In his own words, he said, these were all the blasphemies that I had been told were part of the Christian faith. But the more he began to listen, the more he continued to stay curious, and his curiosity drove him to start writing letters to our team. And he was invited after completing a correspondence course in New Testament theology, for lack of a better term, he was invited to meet with other Moroccans who were believers in Jesus. And his response was, are you kidding me? There's other Moroccans who are experiencing what I've experienced? And they said, yeah. And in the midst of all of the upheaval and the cultural intensity that he knew he was facing, he chose to put his life in Christ, and not just to put his life in Christ, but to go home and communicate that to his mother and to his father and to his siblings, all of whom over time eventually found faith in Christ. 
all of them eventually had to flee the country for their lives. But today, Rashid is a minister of the gospel on satellite television to innumerable Arabic-speaking people around the world. What we see here is that this incredible, wackadoodle, eccentric wisdom of Jesus, the wisdom of God, even in the midst of a culture where it can seem like it can't penetrate, it can't break through, God, through his spirit, works in people's hearts to connect the truth of his word to what people want to know. There's power in the wisdom of the cross, but we have to recognize that the true source of wisdom is God himself. The second point is the humility that wisdom possesses. Going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. All characteristics of the highest class of citizen in Corinth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness and our holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. As Paul continues to address the Corinthian church that is starting to look and sound and feel more like Corinthian society, he dives in here to what the major difference is and and asks them to reflect on what the difference is between their faith and their belief and that which is spoken by the community of philosophers around them. When I read verses 26 through 29, I'm really struck by the fact that Paul was addressing people who came to faith as some kind of misfit in society. Maybe they were families of more lower class people who just couldn't afford to send their children or to experience the schools of these philosophers. Because of the exorbitant costs, because of the fact that that would take away a worker and income from what the family needed. Perhaps they were culturally excluded or not considered intelligent enough to enter the schools. Perhaps they had really good ideas, but no one to follow them. The way that Paul speaks to them indicates that they had aspirations, but they were misguided by culture. And in light of that tone, these new followers of Christ, the Corinthian church, they were beginning to use their newfound wisdom and position in Christ to puff themselves up according to the culture around them. They were creating status and hierarchy within the church. They were becoming arrogant. They were becoming classist. They were becoming fractured. And like the society around them, they were using the fact that their perceived foolishness had now become a form of wisdom. They were taking their wisdom in Christ and turning it into an idolatry. They wanted equal footing and recognition outside the church or within the church as a new social rank developing in that society. In a nutshell, culture was overtaking this young community of Jesus' followers. The Corinthian dream was incompatible with their faith in Christ. And rather than reflecting the character of Christ 
as disciples of Christ, they were beginning to reflect the character with a Jesus flavor. In verses 30 and 31, Paul asked the Corinthian church to start focusing their thinking again on Christ's wisdom, on the righteousness applied to them, on the sanctification, the being made new and whole, being set apart from culture, to focus on the redemption of Christ's death and resurrection. And he reminds them that they cannot boast as the sophists and the wretchers boasts. But they can only boast in the work of God that's been completed in them. Because that was miraculous. When the gospel is believed by us, it also has to be obeyed by us. Despite the influences of our surroundings, or our own culture, or the past that we are born into, there are ways to follow after the Lord with great boldness. Let me tell you about Carlos. Carlos is a modern example of this truth being lived out. After leaving home at the age of 13, Carlos became a leader in the Colombian cocaine trade where he lorded over entire coca coca plantations for a man named Pablo Escobar. Carlos was a ruler, but he was the ruler of a very dark kingdom. One harvesting season, Carlos, who was a bookworm, found himself deep in the mountains with nothing to read. So he started reading the only book he could find on the plantation, a small New Testament that was given him by the man who actually owned the land that was overtaken for this use. And Carlos tells of how he and his 40 bodyguards would read together. He jokes, we talked about the New Testament everywhere. We became something weird. We made cocaine, we were armed, but during the night we read the New Testament. With all of this study, with all of the reading, he was still very apathetic towards God because he had a past. He grew up in a culture where he felt hopeless and had nothing. And so he went somewhere where he felt part of a community, but it wasn't fulfilling him. One day, Carlos was left alone on the mountain. He sent his 40 bodyguards to do something in another field. And while they were gone, he went to do something to clear some area out. And he accidentally struck himself in the leg with his machete. Pretty bad wound. And as day fell into night and nobody came to help him or to rescue him, he pulled out the only thing that he could find in the little building where he found a place to sit down and rest and to try and wrap his leg, he found a radio. And as he fiddled with the dial, he says a voice met him on that desolate mountain and he recalled several times, I thought the preacher was right next to me, telling me everything. There's no safety without Christ. Say this prayer with me. And Carlos says that in that moment, he received Christ. And three days later, Carlos poured gasoline over the entire cocaine operation and set it on fire. And he says, that was that. I was free from cocaine, free from the cocaine lab, free from everything. Except the death threats that would follow. But Carlos eventually broke free from that as the cartel fell to its knees, and Carlos eventually became a pastor, began planting churches among the Colombian people, using soccer as a gateway to minister to the youth of the children in the city of Bogota. And out of Carlos's former bodyguards, 40 bodyguards, 14 of them are also today pastors. Over 25 churches have been, have been planted in Colombia And Carlos reflects and says, to receive Jesus was incredible. I really found Jesus, or better, he found me. I think it's the second one.
See, Carlos is a reminder that God's wisdom, God's ways of drawing people to himself are superior to those of our worldly ideas. The truth of the gospel that appeals to people from every walk of life, every culture, every background, does so because it has transformative power. The Spirit of God uses his word to draw people to himself, and he does that everywhere. If he can do that among among a cocaine dealer in the jungles of Colombia that no missionary or pastor could have ever reached, how much more can he do it with others? That's the paradoxical humility of wisdom. Our third point is the way that Paul proclaims the gospel himself. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And here at the end of this section, Paul begins to to remind the Corinthian believers of the way that he approached them, of his methodology for sharing truth with them. He says, I didn't use lofty speech. That's the way of the wretchers. I didn't use worldly wisdom. That's the way of the sophists. Paul, a very educated and wise man, chose to strip all of that worldly argumentation and debate out of his message. And despite the perception that Paul knew he was taking on of being a fool, Paul, the so-called babbler by the Greeks and the Romans, preached Christ crucified. Now, if you've studied the New Testament extensively, you know a third of it or more was written by Paul. I have a hard time reading the book of Romans in particular and thinking that that author was a simple person, (laughs) a simple-minded, foolish person. In terms of Paul's own credentials, he could have run circles around the sophists and the rhetoricists of his era. He was a highly educated Messianic rabbi before he went on the road to preach the gospel. He was a well-traveled church planter who was familiar with the philosophies and the traditions of the so-called intelligentsia among both the Jews and the Gentiles everywhere he went. I want to make it very clear here, Paul is not saying we should abandon education or live in isolated ignorance. Paul himself was a highly educated person, as are many Christian leaders today. Biblical, theological, other forms of education are immensely important to what we do, but Paul's own approach, both in Athens and in Corinth, the centers of philosophy in his era, was to set aside his own wisdom and instead focus on the cross, on the humility of the cross, on the love of the cross, the compassion of Jesus, rather than set out an exhaustive list of his credentials which is what would have been expected of him. This is a powerful example for us today because so many Christians want to 
debate or they feel compelled to win others by debate or by argumentation. And we see this especially in the areas of social media. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, tells us through Paul's own hand that Paul was underwhelming as a speaker in the view of the Corinthians. When he showed up to speak, they were like, oh, this guy? Probably the way some of you feel about me right now. Just kidding. Well, hopefully not. But that was the idea that he was up against, that you had to be eloquent and performance-oriented in order to get people to believe in your message. So Paul was breaking the cultural mold. He did not want to boast in himself. He wanted to boast in the wisdom of Jesus that changed his life and would change others. And it's a powerful example because we have to learn how to just tell our story and tell the story of Jesus in a way that doesn't require sophisticated arguments or a degree in apologetics or theology. There's nothing wrong with those things. But that's not necessarily the way that you're going to win someone else to believe. Paul was capable of this. At times he used this in approach as an expert, but he didn't do it in Corinth. And I think we can learn from this when we interact today with our neighbors who have little and increasingly little understanding of the Bible and the story of redemption. God can work through us without having crafty arguments. But we have to be faithful to tell his story, along with our own experience of our lives that are changed by our faith. Those narratives are incredibly powerful. Paul arrived in weakness and in fear and trembling. He was fragile. He was afraid. He was tired. But God's wisdom, his truth, reinvigorated him. And Paul says that his speech and his message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul made room for God's wisdom and allowed the Spirit to work in that, even in the silence, even in the times of awkwardness, the times where he felt threatened. Paul knew how to to train up and to educate and to warn the Corinthian church that they were making some dangerous decisions. What do we do, though, with these three examples of the wisdom of God, the humility of God, Paul's example, and the way that he shares with us? Well, let me just close with, with three things. First, Paul was faithful to share the hope of Christ with Corinth despite his fears, despite his pains, despite his concerns. He didn't minimize them. He didn't say that they weren't real. He didn't say that they weren't barriers. He wasn't not worried that he couldn't overcome them. And in fact, it was a vision of God that had to affirm him, had to confirm in his life that he was in the right place and he needed to stay. Despite the obstacles and the unknowns that we face in our lives, we are still God's ambassadors, even in the unknowns. I mentioned in the first hour an example from Afghanistan, which I think is really important and relevant here. I'm really encouraged by the way that believers in places like Afghanistan seek to make disciples every day despite the risks that they encounter. Listen to the story that we received at TWR recently. I'm 33 years old and I'm married. I have three sons and I work for the government. I know enough about our religious affairs, and you can read a lot into that one statement. I know enough about our religious affairs, but I had no knowledge of Christ and had no faith in anything. I knew nothing about Christ until one of my childhood friends introduced me. I was very hard-hearted and upset at the time, and when he noticed such things, he invited me to a garden for a conversation in which he discussed the scriptures. 
I didn't believe him at first, but I called him one day to find out more. He did me a favor by telling me about salvation. I knew him. I knew he was trustworthy, so I trusted everything he said. He also told me about the radio programs which have inspired me and transformed my life. In Afghanistan, people are sitting down with their friends who they've spent a lifetime demonstrating their faith to, maybe without words. In this case, with words. And the friend said, tell me why you're so different. Tell me what makes you different. Tell me why you can have hope in the midst of this place that we live, in what is going on. And ultimately, that man found faith in Christ. And now it's a privilege for our organization, our ministry, to disciple that man in the safety and security of his own home. Even in Afghanistan, people are sharing the wisdom of Christ. How faithful and courageous is the friend who would share his faith in Jesus with an Afghan country official, despite the risks. Being an ambassador for Christ is such a privilege, but it doesn't always mean it's safe or easy or without risk. But we get to love people wherever they are, and they need love. The second thing is that according to 1 Corinthians 13, later in this letter, our calling is not to be gongs and cymbals. I think this is a really important and perhaps difficult truth for us to sometimes hear, but I ask you to please really understand me here. Like Paul, we have to leave room for God's wisdom to be the thing that counteracts the ideas and the philosophies of our culture. Including the outcomes of our culture's decisions. There's not an ideology or a culture or a political affiliation or religion that is exempt from this truth. And as a missionary worker, the ways that I see Christians affected by broader American society, those tensions that I feel, including through politics, is deeply, deeply concerning to me. Here's some comments that have been made to me after I have spoken in various places around this country over the years. I once had an evangelical believer tell me that the best we could do in the Middle East was to send in our military. Not the hope of the gospel, but our military to remove people from the face of the earth. Another person has told me that the gospel shouldn't be taken to places like Europe or to Israel because they rejected God centuries ago. I could give you more and more and more of those stories, things that have been said to me directly. Those things do not align with or reflect the heart of God. Period. A God that calls his people to be ambassadors of love and truth and compassion does not call us to judge the world in which we live. And if you don't believe me, read John 3.17. Most of us know John 3.16 by heart. God so loved the world. But we like to skip over sometimes John 3.17 which tells us that Jesus himself did not yet come to judge the world. Why do we take that on as our task and our responsibility? 
We've got to love and show people the love of God and trust that the power it has had in our lives and in our community will do the same for them. The current political situation in America, honestly, is a, is a case study in Christian thought and action, and it's getting more complex week by week. As Christians, we are so politically divided, increasingly separating ourselves from dialogue or in seeking understanding even amongst each other, let alone with the world in which we interact with and work with and go to school with. especially amongst those who do not share our worldview. And elections and the pandemic and economic fears have generated bitter, toxic battlegrounds that most of the church or much of the church in our country has decided to willingly contribute to, but not in a positive, biblical, disciple-making way. And I think this truly breaks the heart of God. We can't hide in the shadows of social media and the internet and criticize and abuse. God sees that. He knows that, and that's not our calling. Politically speaking, we live in a very complex time. There are people who sit on the other side of maybe what we perceive as the political aisle from our belief. Do we seek to understand why they believe what they believe, especially in an urban context? Do we make them the other, or do we see the love of God and the desperation and the hopelessness that a lot of people feel and don't feel they have a way out of? It's our job as believers to represent the love of God. If we're not doing that, then we are the gongs and the symbols that Paul warns us not to be. The hardest question that I had to answer when I was traveling all around this globe for four years while living and working based in Europe was what is happening with the American church. We have so much that we can learn from our brothers and sisters in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, We've not grown up with all of the access and privilege that we have with gospel materials and wealth and resources. I think it's time that we set aside some of our own beliefs in ourselves, our own cultural wisdom, and start listening to the cultures and the churches around the world that have so much to teach us if we would listen. It is a humbling experience to be faced <laughs> with people of no wealth, of little education, whose faith outshines ours by miles because they see the wisdom of God for what it is in its purest state. It's something that we can strive for. If we have not love, we're noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. So in what do we boast? Thirdly, understand your encounters. We have a spiritual enemy but our spiritual enemy is not the people we encounter. The God of this age blinds unbelievers to the truth of God, 2 Corinthians 4.4. On one of my trips overseas, I had to travel into the Middle East. And while in the Middle East, I was doing, gathering some photography at uh, 
of all places, the mosque of the sultan of that country. Photography is a hugely influential part of what we do through visual media at TWR, through articles that we publish, uh, news stories that we share in a variety of mediums and a lot of other publications. Um, at the end of that time of collecting the photography, I had the opportunity to sit down with an imam, one of the imams of the sultan. And he began that conversation with me by asking me where I was from, what is my faith background, and I said, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And at this point, it's important that I tell you that on the way into this complex, at every entrance are actual soldiers with actual swords, actually empowered to use them, <laughs> if people like me are too vocal about what I believe, okay? But when I responded that I'm a Christian, he said, but what type of Christian are you? Are you a Baptist Christian? Are you a Pentecostal Christian? Are you a, and he, he listed a whole bunch of things out. And the reason he was asking is because he was prepared to take my theological belief and turn it to his message, okay? And there's a lot that I could continue to tell you about that story, but what I want you to, to understand and take away from that is what I realized in talking to that man that had elevated position in his culture, in his society, in his religion, was that I was reminded of his spiritual blindness and the fact that his approach was similar to so much of what Christian missionaries have done over the years, was to prepare for debate, <laughs> to argue according to cultural standards or manipulations that are not the gospel itself, okay? We hear stories at TWR of religious leader, of other religious leaders like this who tune into our radio programs to build a case against our teaching with the people who follow them. And something strange often happens. Years later, these religious leaders will write to us and thank us for what they're learning from our programs. They never get to the point where they're using that material against us. The Spirit works through those radio transmissions to change those lives of those people. And so we can take issue with political systems and governments, but please don't lose sight of the people who live within those borders and under those ideologies. We're dealing with a horrible situation as a ministry with the Ukraine-Russia war. And I get asked a lot about what's going on with our team in Ukraine. Hardly anybody asks me what's going on with our team in Russia, who are stuck in a situation that they don't agree with and don't believe in, many of whom have had to flee the country to protect their sons from getting called into a war that they don't believe they should fight. Our Russian leader had to flee the country he lives in a different country, upended his entire life, left his home, left his belongings, left everything because he loves his people. <laughs> so again, we have a spiritual enemy, but it is not the people that we encounter. The Bible has a lot to say about relationships, and we can't let our pride or our arrogance or our boasting become like that of the Corinthians. We're to be a people of love and compassion who bless rather than curse. Our world has no shortage of opportunities, no lack of encounters by which we can represent Christ today. Wisdom, though, has to be our guide. Biblical wisdom has to lead us 
We must encourage and support one another as we do this. God has chosen to entrust us and our generation who believe in him with the stewardship of distributing his saving gospel throughout this entire world. And he's given us more tools than any other generation could ever dream of to carry out that work. This is our great commission. Do we trust that God will continue to use the wisdom of fools, wackadoodle wisdom, to draw the world to himself, to save the oppressed, and to save the oppressor from our spiritual enemy? I want to close with a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, where he writes them again to admonish them, to encourage them, to challenge them in new areas, but I want you to notice a huge, huge change of tone in this passage. In the first text that we read today, Paul uses a lot of you language. You shouldn't this, you can't this, you should remember. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, listen to how he speaks to this church community. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Twelve times Paul uses we or our language. The Corinthian church despite what it still wasn't getting right, took to heart what he encouraged them and challenged them with in our text from today. And they were growing and they were developing and they were becoming ministers of the gospel just like Paul himself so that he could say we and our and ourselves. So like like them, we have to learn to rest ourselves today in the power of God's wisdom. Let our light shine in love, in grace, with mercy to the darkness of the world that we live in and encounter every day. Thank you for letting me share with you today. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and we thank you for both the truth that it brings but also the way that it must exhort us, convict us, encourage us and grow us. There are so many hidden mysteries in our world. There are so many things we don't understand. Why war? Why famine? Why abuse? Why poverty? But we take such great hope in the promise that one day you will come back and you will abolish all of those things. That you will eliminate death. But for right here and right now, you've called us to be your love and your hope and your grace and your mercy and your truth to the world around us across every border and every nation and every tribe and every tongue 
with the ability that you have given us. And I pray, Lord, that for those of us who don't know that hope, Lord, that today is the day that they reach out to someone else in this room and, and ask, for, ask for more. Ask for that to be unpacked for them, that they might know you today. For those of us who do believe, who have faith, and you continue to refine us through your holy fire to give us peace and strength and courage when we are at our weakest points, to see others around us with the love and compassion that you have without judgment, but delivering a message of hope. Lord, when you return to deliver justice, may we be found to have been faithful and not believe ourselves to be faithful if we are not. May we rest in your wisdom. May your wisdom guide us and direct our paths each day. Even when we fail, may you raise us up in confidence again. In Jesus' name, amen.